The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. A couple weeks ago, I was driving home from work here at the church, and uh, I, I, I live on University Ave near the intersection with Goodman Street, so I, was, I drove down Clinton and down Goodman and then turned onto my street on University and immediately saw in front of me, a couple blocks ahead, um, as many emergency vehicles in one place as I've ever seen in, in the city. There were two, at least, fire trucks, three or four RPD cruisers, an ambulance, and they all had their lights going, um, full bore, just totally blocked off the street. Fortunately for me, I live closer than that incident, and I could just go home, but um, I immediately saw what had happened because there was smoke pouring out of the top of one of the houses along University Ave, and I actually um, know the person who owns this house. I, I remember from uh, when I used to work at the cafe across the street from it. And so I, I know the person personally. It's a five-family home, and it was, it was just a blaze. And the, the, um, the hoses were going, and the smoke's pouring out. And I found later, because uh, I am in contact with the, the owner, that uh, fortunately nobody was hurt in this fire. But between the fire damage on the top floor and the water damage everywhere else from the fire hoses... The house needed to be completely gutted and reconstructed from the inside. The, the exterior was, you know, okay. They re-roofed part of it. And, but the, the inside was a total loss and was completely wiped out and is now in the process of, of being reframed and rearranged. And uh, being the kind of person that I am, this made me think. I talked to my wife, Tracy, and I thought, okay, so nobody's hurt, right? We have that on the table from the start. But could you imagine, wouldn't that be kind of cool to be able to completely start anew inside your house? You have your house, and there's all these little things you hate about your house, right? This closet's too small. The the kitchen is tiny. um, You know, there's not enough bathrooms, whatever it might be. Now, nobody's hurt, and the insurance is paying for everything. Wouldn't it be pretty neat to start over from scratch and be able to put the inside of this house any way we wanted to? And I, she's like, you're a jerk. Um, <laughs> but a completely fresh start is something that's very intriguing to me. And I love watching like this old house where they take, you know, an old house and, and refurbish it in, in a way that makes it look really neat and new. Um, and not to force a transition, but, but that idea is not unlike what God does in us through the work of Christ. And the ability to completely burn out the insides, all the little things about it that are just wrong, (laughs) and replace that with something new and good and pure. Like the psalmist says, create in me a clean heart, create a new spirit, right spirit within me. What a great picture of what our faith is, is all about. The idea that the insides are completely gutted and reconstructed by the master artisan, 
into something perfect and new. And that central, that is the central truth of Christianity. And that central truth of Christianity was prefigured by the prophets of the Jewish faith in the Old Testament. And we're going to look closely at a short passage from one of those prophets, Prophet Jeremiah, uh, in just a minute. But what I want to do first is turn to that other great prophet of the Old Testament, Isaiah, because uh, as you know, if you've been here for a couple of weeks, we are memorizing this short passage from Isaiah during the season of Lent. Um, how many of you got this completely memorized already? How many of you have a sentence or two memorized already? Okay. How many of you are um, behind and have some work to do? Okay. All right. But we talked about this before. The, the, the act of memorizing this writes it on your heart in a, in a new way. So please try to do this. And I'm going to try to do it too. But for now, um, we're going to say it aloud together. And if you don't um, have it memorized, you can read from the Bibles. These red Bibles are under your chairs. And I try to always put the page numbers on the screen. Um, and as I always say, if you don't own a Bible and would like one, please take one of these home with you. And it's yours. It's our gift to you. We've got a whole box of them. And they, they keep printing more. So you know, we, can, we can always get them. Uh, let's read Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 together. This is our theme verse during Lent. And uh, let me just say one more thing about it before we do. The, the title, Beauty for Ashes, comes from a different translation of verse 3, I think it is. We have a, a garland of beauty for ashes, uh, or garland, a crown, or something like that for ashes. We'll get, I haven't memorized it. We'll get there. Um, <laughs> I'm bad. Um, but the uh, NIV, which is a, probably a more common translation, says beauty for ashes. And we have a song that we sing that has that phrase in it, too. And I, I think it's... I like that phrase better as a, as a title, so you can be thinking about that as we read this. Okay, Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Let's read it together. The Spirit... It is a beautiful passage. Today, as I mentioned, we're going to look at that, uh, another prophet in the Old Testament. We're going to look at Jeremiah 31. And uh, this is page 641 in your Red Bibles. And while you're looking that up, I guess it's not too far away. Um, but what I wanted to do is give you a little bit of historical background that I think will make this passage a little bit clearer. If you know me, you know that I, I feel... Uh, confused if I don't have any context. And so I, I, um, maybe it's projecting that onto everybody else. But I always like to give as much context as I can so you can, you can kind of see what's going on here. So the basic piece of context that I want to give you today is that you see throughout the Bible that God makes covenants with his people. And a covenant is simply a sacred agreement um, between two parties. And God made a covenant with Adam and Eve that he would continue to provide for them even after he was expelling them from the Garden of Eden for their sin. God made a covenant uh, not only with Noah and his family, but it repeatedly says in Genesis 9 that he makes a covenant with all of creation, the covenant that he'll never again flood the earth. 
And probably most famously, God made a covenant with Abraham, the uh, father of the Jewish faith. And the covenant was that Abraham and his wife Sarah would, uh, though they were old and past the age of childbearing, both of them, would become the parents, the mother and father of a great nation. And there was no requirement placed on Abraham for this covenant. It was simply God wanted to do it and said he would, and Abraham believed him enough to step out in faith and, and act. And it was not uh, the smoothest road. It took a couple of decades. But sure enough, eventually, Abraham did become the father and Sarah the mother of the Jewish people. And their progeny grew and grew and grew. And within a few generations, the um, Israelites, who were so named because uh, Abraham's grandson uh, took the name Israel, the Israelites found themselves in slavery in Egypt. And we won't go into the details of how that happened, but they were enslaved in Egypt as an entire people in slavery. And uh, if you went to Sunday school, you know the story that God called Moses uh, up from these Israelites, these Hebrew people, and he was the chosen leader to to, uh, lead the people of God out of Egypt in the Exodus. And if you look at the book of Exodus, that's what this is all about. It's an exit from, from slavery in Egypt. But even after God leads the people and Moses out of slavery in Egypt, they very quickly become disobedient and stubborn, um, which is something that none of us can relate to, but that's the way they were back then. And so they were forced to wander for 40 years. Before they would get to the promised land, they had to wander through the wilderness in the desert. And it's during this period of wandering that we come up with the next big covenant in the Bible, God makes a new covenant with his people through Moses, their leader. But it's a little different this time. Whereas with Abraham, it was simply, I'm going to do this and you need to believe. With Moses, it was a conditional covenant. If you look at Exodus 19.5, God says, tell the people, tells Moses, tell the people, if, it's two little words, two little letters that make a big difference here. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Now, before, they were the treasured possession just, just by their birth and their faith. But now it, it requires that they obey these commandments. And famously, God wrote on stone tablets the, the Decalogue, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, um, which we, we still have imprinted you know, in certain parts of our uh, public life here in America to this day. And from there, you have not only just these Ten Commandments, but more and more and more. And pretty soon you have over 600 uh, laws, known as the Mosaic Laws, after Moses, their leader, that people had to follow in order to be in shalom or in right relationship with God and with each other. And that law expanded and it it included the system of sacrifice, animal sacrifice, that was um, meted out by a cast of priests and it was, um, it was a very different situation than, than you had at the beginning. And we're getting closer to Jeremiah here because centuries later, after the people have been into the promised land and again become disobedient and stubborn, they're conquered by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. And that's when these great prophets arise. And the prophets are essentially saying two things to them. The first and and probably biggest thing that they say is, we as a people need to turn back to God. We sometimes have this idea that prophets go and like preach to the heathens. 
And once or twice in the Bible you see that. But most of the time the prophets are preaching to the people of God because they have completely lost track of where they're supposed to be. And so the first thing is we need to turn back as a people to God, to the, to the laws and to the, the writings and, and the, the faith that we once knew. But the second thing, and this is a beautiful part for us who call ourselves Christians, that the prophets are saying, is that God is, God is going to do something new. God is promising that there is going to be a new hope, a new reality is going to dawn on God's people and on all nations. And that's where we look today. As we look at Jeremiah 31, it's in that period of conquest and the people are in exile or about to be in exile. And the words of the prophet Jeremiah, let me just read the whole passage and then we're going to go through it a little bit at a time. 31 through 34 of chapter 31. I gave you the wrong page number before, but you're smart enough. You figured that out already. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. A beautiful picture of new reality that's coming. Jeremiah tells the people that the Lord is promising. The days are surely coming when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is significant because the, the, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, had divided into two kingdoms, and, and one was really bad and one was only kind of bad. And the really bad kingdom had been conquered early, and so the kind of bad people were like, nah, nah, you're stupid. And pretty soon they were conquered too because they were... Um, also stupid, which is the theological term that I prefer to use. Um, but they had both been conquered. But So that right in the beginning here, you say, this new covenant will be with both these groups of people. So it's, it's not a question of who was stupid first or best or most. <laughs> that's, not, that's not where God is going here. He says, I will make a new covenant. And I love this phrase. It will not be like the old one. It will not be like the old covenant, the other one. God is doing something new. Isn't it amazing that, you know, even today we fix God into this little box, like he's never going to do anything new ever again. And the people had that same error then. It's not going to be like the old one, the old covenant that I made with them, which was the, the Mosaic covenant. What were the characteristics of that Mosaic covenant? Well, it was conditional on their obedience. It required these priests. The law was written in stone, literally. That's where we get the expression, written in stone. And it's, it's that covenant that the people broke. Now, here you have the, this kind of odd idea that, though I was their husband, 
And, uh, you know, don't get too creeped out by that concept. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's there throughout the Bible, in the Old and New Testament, that, that the, our relationship with God is similar to that of the relationship between a husband and wife uh, in some ways. The idea here is that these people broke this covenant and they are like an unfaithful spouse in doing so. Which is, a, I mean, that's a, that's a dramatic analogy to make. That's the covenant that they broke, and that's, what, that's the type of person they were, people they were when they broke it. And that's the picture of the old covenant. But that's not what God is going to do. It's, he says it's not going to be like that. 33, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. The law before was outside. The, the, this source of shalom or rightness with God was external to our being, to, the, to their being. And it was written on stone tablets. And now God is saying this new covenant is going to be internal. It's going to be in our souls, in our hearts. And we talked a few weeks ago about how Hebrews and Greeks and, and Americans all have different understandings of what heart and soul and mind and all that stuff means. We don't want to go into that right now. The point is this new covenant is going to be inside us. It's going to be innate to us in some way. And instead of that law being written on stone tablets, which can be broken, and they were, if someone were, you know, I don't know, for example, to get angry and throw them on the ground, the law is written on our hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Which was the point all along, that I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people and it's going to be great and all you need to do is believe, Abraham. And sure, we got started on that road. But before long, it got messed up. And so this new Mosaic Covenant comes along. And it's very simple. Just ten things, guys. Ten things. Not enough. Let's explain a little bit more about what we mean. 600 laws and priests and sacrifice. These are all ways that God is saying, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. But we just can't do that on our own. We're not really capable of that. So in this new covenant, he's saying, this will be the way it is. I will be your God, their God, and they will be my people. And then he says something really remarkable and amazing. He says, they, they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest. Remember how we talked, uh, was it two weeks ago, or was it last week, about the, the structure of the temple and how, depending on where you were in the uh, class system, you could go to certain parts of the temple but not to others. And then the, the most important part, the holiest part of the temple, could only be entered once a year and then only by the high priest. And it had this, this veil which was torn at, at the moment of Christ's death. This is, this is kind of like the same idea. They shall all know me from the least to the greatest. They're not going to need priests to offer sacrifice for them. They're not going to need experts to explain everything to them. They're not going to need to be men 
or Jews to be right with me. It's going to be everybody from the least to the greatest. And finally, the, the most important thing, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So not only is this new covenant internal to us and written on our hearts rather than on stone, not only is it for everybody, regardless of our stature in the community or our gender or our race, but we are forgiven and God remembers our sin no more. And when we try to walk in the way of Jesus, we are called to forgive. And we try. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's very hard. And a lot of the time, maybe even most of the time, when we even are successful in forgiving other people, that's about as far as we can get. The forgetting part? No, no. I will forgive, but I am always going to remember it may have nothing to do with spite. It may simply be that you are so impaired by what somebody has done to you that it's almost impossible to forget. But God says, I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. What an amazing, amazing thing. Now, all of this, all of it points to one thing. And that is the incarnation of God as a human being, Jesus Christ, and his life and his ministry, his execution at the hands of religious insiders and a compliant civic authority, his resurrection from the dead. In those incredible events, Jesus conquered evil and sin and death. And by our faith in him, we receive that forgiveness that God promised to people through the prophet Jeremiah. And as we proceed through the season of Lent, we are about two weeks away from the weekend when we observe those most important events, the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. And we'll have a, a, a Good Friday service at 11 p.m. in this room um, as we remember his crucifixion. And we'll have a celebratory worship service on Sunday morning as usual in this room as we remember his resurrection. And that's where we're headed. This passage points to that. And as we're walking through Lent, everything we are doing also points to that. And so even though today's talk focused on the, that, this Old Testament passage, Jeremiah, what I want to do is conclude with the reading um, for this week's gospel passage. Um, because in this passage, even though we're not going to dig into it at all, we see Jesus beginning to indicate to his disciples what is about to happen, the kind of death he's going to have and so forth. So let me ask you to stand together for the reading of the gospel. John chapter 12, verses 20 through 33. You have Jeremiah's prophetic words ringing in your ears. You have Good Friday and Easter Sunday on the horizon. And you have this story um, right here in the middle with us. Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. 
They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Be seated. He said this to indicate the type of death that he would die. And when we come together on Sunday mornings to worship him, what we are doing, and we don't always say this explicitly, but what we are doing is reenacting that entire gospel story. We don't hit every little piece of it every single week, but the songs that we sing and the scriptures that we read and the word that is proclaimed all point to and retell the story of the gospel. And nowhere is that more powerfully retold than at the table of communion. Jesus said these things to indicate to them what sort of death he would die. And when we come to worship him, we celebrate at this table to remember the type of death that he did die. And of course, implicit in that is our remembrance of his resurrection and his conquering of death. And so this morning when you come to communion, I'd like you to remember his body, which was broken for you. And his blood, which was shed for you. We practice uh, something called intiction here, which simply means you tear off a piece of the bread and you can dip it in the cup. We have both wine and juice, uh, whatever is more appropriate for you and your family. Remember his death. Remember the kind of death he died. And in doing this, prepare your hearts for what is coming in a couple of weeks. We're going to continue to worship also through song. And so you can sing as you're taking communion. You can sit and pray and remember him that way. This really is a a sacrament that's open to all people who are Christians. But if you're here visiting and and don't identify as a Christian, we're happy you're here. And and you are certainly welcome to sit and observe and and think and pray. And and there will come a day, we hope, when when you will identify yourself as one of Jesus' followers. and, And this will be appropriate for you at that time. Um, But for now, regardless of where you are, uh, spiritually, I'd like to invite you to respond to the hearing of God's word and continue to worship him in whatever way you sense his spirit moving in your heart.
and our table is open.